Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of data maps. My entire office is covered in maps indicating everything from the political leanings of suburbs in Ohio to fish consumption per capita in East Africa. You can learn so much about regional trends through data on maps. But you can also learn a lot from a lack of data. The concept for this piece started when I was going through a bunch of religious and demographic maps on Africa, and these maps all had some really detailed work on them. But time after time, there's always one area of the map blotted out in grey, one area that consistently had no data. How could one area be so consistently unaccounted for, even across many publications? What is there to report from a country no one reports on? So that's today's topic, the country no one reports on, Western Sahara. Western Sahara is an almost upside-down L-shaped country on the western coast of Africa, nestled between Morocco, Algeria, and Mauritania, where the Sahara meets the sea. And on these forgotten sands lies a regional conflict between Morocco, Mauritania, and the Sawari people, a semi-nomadic people who have lived on the land for hundreds of years. And although everyone seems to just gloss over it, this has been the site of a bloody civil war, a region-changing highway, and to this day, the last African colony. So this week, we take a look at Western Sahara, and fill in the blank of the area always labelled as no data as the outcome for this conflict may open the floodgates for others in countries as far as Venezuela, Serbia, and India. But to talk more about that, and more about Western Sahara itself, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Africa's Last Colony Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Western Sahara is a nation about the size of Britain, just south of Morocco on the Atlantic coast. 
the land has uh, traditionally uh, been occupied by Hassaniya tribes. These are an Arabic uh, people who have their own unique uh, dialect and clothes and customs. Uh, they have traditionally been very independent-minded uh, uh, people. Uh, the Spanish uh, colonial control uh, was somewhat um, limited in terms of their actual control of the territory. Uh, but uh, they are uh, people who are very, uh, very much in the role of wanting to determine their own future, not be part of a, a, a any of the neighboring countries. Indeed, the uh, International Court of Justice and the uh, United Nations Security Council, indeed, virtually the entire international community recognizes them as a non-self-governing uh, territory, a, 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 a state distinct from that of the Kingdom of Morocco. Stephen Zunez is an international relations scholar specializing in the Middle East and North Africa. He's also the author of the book, Western Sahara, War, Nationalism and Conflict Irresolution. He's one of the world's foremost experts when it comes to Western Sahara, and he joins us today. France was the maiden colonizer of Morocco. Uh, it was a protectorate. The Spaniards did have a strip of territory in the far north and far south of, of Morocco, as well as an enclave of Ifni. In fact, to this day, they still control two tiny presidios on the Mediterranean uh, coast. But generally, the people south of the um, <clears throat> Draa River in southern uh, Morocco do have a, have a, a distinct uh, language and, and culture. But, but more importantly, uh, the, in, in terms of uh, on a legal basis, uh, Morocco, uh, is re- uh, Morocco is recognized as a, a sovereign nation in the, in the uh, uh, territories of, of that uh, we generally see on the map of Morocco, whereas Western Sahara is a, a non-self-governing territory that is a colony. When, when you are a colony, uh, international law is very clear. You have a right of self-determination. You have a right to say, hey, I want to remain part of the old colonial uh, power as some, uh, as Puerto Rico, for example, has with the United States or some various uh, French islands and that sort of thing. Or you have the right to say, hey, I want to be an independent state. Or you could even say, hey, I want to be part of a neighboring country. But the key is, is that the people of the territory are the ones who decide, not a powerful neighbor. Indeed, this was what the whole controversy around uh, East Timor you know, was about, uh, that uh, they were initially denied their right of self-determination. Indonesia you know, took it over by force, and there was a, a long struggle for them to finally achieve their uh, independence. And this is, this is exactly what's going on in Western Sahara right now. From the 1950s onward, Africa went through a period of decolonialization, where countries went from being European possessions to becoming republics of their own. So why didn't Western Sahara change at the same time everybody else was? Why is Western Sahara still viewed as a colonial possession? Well, Spain, like Portugal, was late in its decolonization. It was still under fascist rule. Uh, they didn't believe in uh, democracy or self-determination of their own people, much less those in Africa. But uh, when they... When Spain was uh, about to withdraw in 19, late 1975, uh, when a referendum on the fate of the territory was to be uh, scheduled early the following year, uh, the Moroccans in- instead decided to invade. Uh, they made a real dramatic uh, production of having 
hundreds of thousands of Moroccans mass on the border to symbolically cross over to uh, supposedly liberate the territory from the Spaniards, but uh, they had simultaneous, simultaneously, uh, the Moroccan army entered the uh, territory and ended up uh, forcing uh, nearly half of the Sahrawi population into refugee camps in neighboring Algeria, where they remain to this day. They gave a, a facade of, of, of legalism to it uh, when the United States uh, pr pressured Spain to sign an agreement that gave Morocco and, and for a brief time Mauritania administrative authority over the territory pending a, a decision on self-determination, one which never took place. Uh, the United States, so uh, which was um, uh, then under Pre President Ford and Secretary of State Kissinger, who also uh, uh, approved the Indonesian takeover of East Timor, uh, were concerned that the Polisario Front, the nationalist movement that had been fighting Spain for self-determination, was too left-wing in their orientation. And Spain, uh, with Franco on his deathbed, uh, people were concerned about a possible war between Morocco and Spain and didn't want to have uh, Spain uh, distracted, uh, particularly uh, you know, given the concerns about the uh, leftists and, and, and Portugal and Spain itself that might want to take advantage of the transition. So in many ways, uh, this was another casualty of Cold War politics. So in 1975, the idea put forward by the US, known as the Madrid Accords, would have two-thirds of Western Sahara, the center and north, administered by Morocco, and the southern third administered by Mauritania. This would be a temporary solution until a referendum could be held by the people of Western Sahara to vote to either become an independent republic or join Morocco or Mauritania. This referendum, though, never happened. The people never got a vote. Why is that? The main reason, of course, is that Morocco was concerned, um, justifiably it would seem, that a uh, vote on, on um, self-determination would indeed go for independence. There was um, very little pro-Moroccan sympathies. A uh, United Nations a delegation uh, visited Western Sahara in the fall of 1975 and found that people were o overwhelmingly in support of independence under the Polisario Front, not and, 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 and no support really for integration into either Morocco or or Mauritania. And this is essentially a, a, a power grab by the uh, Moroccan monarchy, which was concerned that after two uh, almost successful uh, coup attempts, uh, that they needed to uh, embrace a nationalist banner and to um, get the people to, uh, um, to join the cause of uh, the greater Morocco, a vision which also included uh, all our parts of a number of, of neighboring countries. <laughs> Though thus far, Western Sahara is the only only one they have actually uh, been able to to take over. When the Spanish were in control of Western Sahara, they found large oil and phosphate deposits. Although at the time, with Libya being closer to Europe and having more oil infrastructure, it was cheaper to use Libya for oil production coming out of the region. Are there still large resource deposits sitting in Western Sahara at the moment? For the ruling country to exploit. Well, there has been speculation of of, um, of oil resources. They really have not been able to um, extract <laughs> um, much at this point. The, the main resources are are the phosphates, which are among the richest in the world, uh, given that they are 
being taken from a non-self-governing territory without permission of the population. These are seen by uh, uh, a number of international uh, jurists as stolen goods. It's why the, uh, uh, the uh, Western Saharan phosphates, which are used in um, fertilizer in, in Australia and, and other countries around the world, have been so controversial. There's also very rich uh, fishing grounds off the coast of Western Sahara, uh, which also bring in uh, extensive uh, income. It's led to a number of uh, decisions by the European court that have overruled fishing agreements between the EU and Morocco for failing to distinguish between fishing off the coast of Morocco, which is perfectly legal, uh, and uh, fishing off the coast of this uh, non-self-governing uh, territory. But uh, the, the initial uh, grab, I think, was more for political reasons, uh, less than that of a, um, of, 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 of a resource grab per se. But at this point, uh, there are, are many high officials in the Moroccan government, the royal family, of course, but also uh, leaders in the military uh, that have a personal stake in the phosphate mines and other uh, natural resources, which is indeed making it uh, difficult uh, for them to want to give it up. It also... No, the, the resource, uh, uh, the, the rich natural resources of the territory do uh, indicate that if Western Sahara did become an independent uh, country, it would be uh, quite viable, uh, given that it would have one of the higher per capita incomes on the African continent due to the low population combined uh, with these uh, generous natural resources. When it became apparent that Morocco would not allow a referendum on independence, a civil war broke out in Western Sahara that went on for 16 years. Can you take us through this civil war and explain what people were fighting for? Well, initially, the, uh, the, the Palisario Front, which had been battling the uh, Spaniards, uh, then turned their guns on their new occupiers, Morocco and Mauritania. And within four years, the, uh, uh, the Palisario had, had driven the Mauritanians uh, out. They, um, they recognized the uh, independent state of Western Sahara and and handed over their third of the country uh, to them. But Morocco ended up seizing uh, that uh, territory uh, as well. So the, um, uh, the Palisario began you know, battling the Moroccans primarily, and by 1982 had driven them from all but the 15% far north western corner. Uh, and, and at this point, uh, Western Sahara began to be recognized as an independent nation state by a whole series of, of, of countries, over 80 countries recognized them at one time or another as independent. They became a full member of the African uh, Union, uh, the, the uh, Western Sahara, formerly known as the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, uh, opened embassies in various countries around the world. Uh, but at this point, the uh, United States and France, with some Saudi financing, uh, ended up coordinating a, a, a counterinsurgency campaign by Morocco which allowed them to expand their hold on, to on the territory to nearly 70% of uh, Western Sahara. And they built this uh, separation wall, these, these uh, sand berm, high sand berms with uh, landmines and barbed wire, uh, which, which went down through the territory, which basically shut the Polisario uh, out of most of their country. And a ceasefire was finally agreed upon in 1990, uh, where the um, um, that the Palisario would stop fighting, 
those tried to stop fighting in return for an, a UN-supervised referendum on the fate of the territory. However, the Moroccans uh, refused to allow the referendum to, to take place. And it was because of, of this refusal and other provocations and violations of the ceasefire uh, that the uh, Moroccans engaged in over the um, subsequent uh, 20 years, uh, that, um, or thir 30 years, I should say, uh, that uh, led the uh, Polisario just this past November uh, to break the ceasefire and to, uh, to resume uh, the desert war. As the front lines stand at the moment, Morocco administers about 90% of the territory in Western Sahara, most of the western areas with the major cities in the coast, with the remaining 10% being the sliver of land straddling the borders of Algeria and Mauritania. The Moroccans, with help from western countries, had had a pretty decisive victory here. So why stop where they did? Why not push in and conquer the final 10% of western Sahara and expel the Polisario Front in Algeria or Mauritania? Why did they stop where they did? The war had become sort of a stalemate. Uh, indeed, I witnessed a firefight along the separation berm uh, back in uh, <clears throat> 1987, and it, it was it was really it was a war of attrition. Basically, it was it was co costing the Moroccans an enormous amount of of, of money uh, to uh, <clears throat> man the, uh, the these these sentry posts uh, along this uh, you know 1,200 mile uh, berm. And the cost of occupation, which uh, was 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 really um, becoming uh, more more difficult uh, for them. Uh, the um, in terms of France and the United States, again, initially it was kind of a Cold War thing. The Polisario was seen as too left wing. They were never communist or Marxist, but they were definitely part of this kind of third world left leaning nationalism that was very uh, that was popular during the nineteen seventies. Uh, and, and, and the Palestinians made clear they want to be a democratic, Western, free market, you know, kind of country. They're secular. That is, they, they, don't, they don't, don't embrace a conservative form of Islam and you know, the kind of uh, Islam practiced by the uh, Sahrawis are actually fairly liberal uh, by the re regional standards. Uh, women are unveiled, have equal rights to inheritance and divorce, keep their maiden names. Uh, they, um, but uh, the... The, the, the thing, the main concern about the United States, for the United States and France, is that uh, Morocco has been a strong Western ally under the monarchy, um, and, um, initially, uh, and of course, during the Cold War, but more recently in the so-called global war on terror. Uh, the, 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 the French and other Europeans are concerned that uh, Morocco, in, reta in retaliation to uh, support for independence, might open the floodgates of emigration into Europe, uh, the northern tip of Morocco is only 12 miles from the uh, southern tip of Spain. And the United States, uh, along, along with France and others, are, are concerned that you know, the, the, the monarchy is, is increasingly unpopular, the, the level of um, corruption and inequality and ongoing political repression domestically uh, is, is such that uh, they're concerned that if uh, there was a referendum and and uh, Morocco would lose, and the people of Morocco had found out they'd been lied to all these years about the Sahrawis supposedly welcoming their liberation and happily being Moroccan, and and uh, and this uh, uh, the, the, all the, the billions of dollars they've spent in in war and in, uh, in paying for the occupation for the um, the sacrifices of thousands of their soldiers uh, were all for naught. Um, there, there's concern there. There could be a reaction that could threaten the monarchy. 
Personally, I think the monarchy is strong enough to, to survive that. But um, I think it's more a matter of, of staying uh, with an ally, uh, sticking with an allied regime, uh, rather than concern about the uh, what an independent Western Sahara uh, would would do uh, would do per se. And currently, the situation in occupied territories is quite horrific in terms of um, of um, human rights abuses. Um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, other other um, human rights monitoring groups have um, noted uh, the, the, the 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 horrific level of repression. Uh, the Freedom House's uh, recent study came out a few weeks ago, and the state of freedom in the world ranked Western Sahara among the half dozen worst countries in the world, along with Tibet and Tajikistan and North Korea. In terms of political repression, indeed, I've been to 85 countries, including uh, uh, Iraq under Saddam and uh, Indonesia under, under Suharto, and I've never seen a worse police state than uh, Western Sahara. And so even though Morocco itself has liberalized in some, uh, somewhat in recent years, the uh, human rights situation in the uh, occupied territory is is really horrific. And that that's something that is embarrassing, I think, to... Uh, the United States and France and other other countries who that are trying to put forward this idea: oh, we support democracy and and secularism and good treatment of, of women in in, in the um, Arab and Islamic world. But then we see them supporting a, a monarchy engaged in repression that are trying to prevent uh, such a nation from emerging. These days, the majority of the Polisario fighters are not only supplied by Algeria, but they're also based out of the small Algerian desert city of Tindouf, just over the border. If Morocco has the support of the majority of the West and the Gulf states, why is Algeria sticking its neck out to back the Polisario front against them? And I think Algeria's uh, primary uh, uh, concern is that um, you know, Morocco does have this vision of, of the greater greater Morocco, which has included Western uh, uh, part of Algeria. In fact, in 1960, uh, uh, t- um, <clears throat> Uh, too, right after uh, independence, uh, Morocco invaded Western Algeria in an attempt to seize seize that. So they they um, they don't want to encourage uh, Moroccan irredentism in, in any way. Uh, similarly, uh, there's concern, you know concern. There's there's a fact that uh, as a uh, a left leaning nationalist revolutionary government, which uh, came to uh, fore by the the long uh, bloody civil war against the French. Uh, they have a certain ideological affinity with a popular revolutionary uh, movement uh, uh, against a, a, a monarchy, um, but they also, you know, I, I think, so, but they think there's a really sincere belief, as there are among uh, most African, you know, countries, that this is a uh, uh, this is Africa's last colony, and that uh, uh, nations with strong anti-colonial traditions, such as as uh, Algeria, have a principal uh, reason for wanting to uh, support. Uh, the independent struggle. So fighting in the region has recently just kicked back into full gear after months of ceasefire. What event re-kicked off these hostilities? What brought it to where it is now? This recent round was a reaction to um, the uh, the Moroccans <clears throat> going into a, a small strip of territory between their wall and the Mauritanian um, border that should have been under Polisario control, uh, according to the ceasefire agreement, uh, to, to approve a highway uh, that would connect uh, Moroccan-occupied Western Sahara uh, with uh, Mauritania to the south. 
And uh, when uh, local Sahrawis protested by you know, nonviolently uh, um, uh, sitting on the roadway, uh, they were forcibly uh, dispersed. And that was sort of the, the, the last straw in the view of the Polisario and the uh, armed struggle uh, resumed. Things got complicated more the following uh, month uh, when President uh, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, ended up uh, uh, recognizing, uh, formally recognizing uh, Morocco's uh, annexation of Western Sahara. It was the first major country to um, uh, recognize this, uh, this takeover. In fact, uh, with the exception of Australia's brief recognition of um, of uh, Indonesia's uh, illegal annexation of East Timor, it's really the first, it's the only time a Western nation has uh, uh, formally uh, recognized the expansion of, 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 of territory by force. It, it uh, really it really puts the whole post-World War II international legal order uh, in, in question, you know, that, that, that it is illegal for countries to expand their territory by force, that, that, that colonies have the right of self-determination. And, um, and generally, um, you know, this, this, these principles you know, have been, been honored. Uh, but if, uh, the, if uh, Morocco gets away with its annexation and with the recent U.S. recognition, it's taken a big step in, in that direction. It, it creates a very dangerous, very dangerous uh, international legal precedent that other countries with irredentist ambitions uh, may want to take advantage of as well. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For a long time, the post-World War II idea of borders shouldn't be changed by aggression has stood up to the test of time. It would have been odd if we'd done nothing about Saddam invading Kuwait, simply because he was on our side. But now this concept is changing, and many countries are looking at Western Sahara and taking notes. Recognition of Israel gave Morocco a green light from the US for their actions toward the South. So who else might be taking this into consideration? And what does the situation in Western Sahara mean for places like Turkey, Venezuela, India, China, and Cameroon? Well, for that... We turn to our second guest. Part 2. Horses and Hand Grenades I would say overall it's uh, quite different. Um, there are significant differences, but there are some similarities in the tactics that the Polisario Front is uh, still employing these days. The big differences are mainly in the... Uh, in the way uh, the, 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 the fighting is carried out, particularly by the Moroccans. So I would say the first difference is that there is now a very significant technological gap between the two sides, even larger than it already was uh, uh, in the 80s and, and up to 1991. Of course, and that gap was always in favor of Morocco. Morocco was always able to rely on 
significant support in terms of so military purchases and, and uh, training and collaboration by uh, France and the US and so on. Uh, these days, I would say that this gap is even larger because uh, Morocco can rely on significantly uh, advanced technological uh, equipment, uh, one of which uh, uh, of these facilities of this equipment is obviously the uh, presence of drones, the possibility of using drones. Uh, whereas Polisario, the Polisario still relies mainly on uh, weapons uh, dating back to more or less uh, the 1980s and 1990s. And obviously all of these weapons can only be sourced through Algeria. So it's a much, I would say, also a smaller uh, pool from which uh, the Polisario can actually draw some of its uh, equipment and, and its resources. And uh, the fighting is also happening and taking place in an environment these days where the Polisario is really struggling to pierce through the sand berm that divides Morocco-controlled Western Sahara from the UN buffer zone or what remains of it. Uh, in the 80s, the Polisario was more able to maneuver and to uh, carry out operations beyond uh, the sand berm these days, again, through technological, uh, I would say, advantages and, and the surveillance systems, Morocco can actually pretty well monitor what the Polisario is trying to do and what they're trying to uh, uh, pierce through the berm. So most of the fighting is taking place uh, on the basis of uh, long-distance shelling, uh, hit-and-run attacks. So a little bit of a different uh, scenario from the 80s where we would say more of a, a, a you know, direct clashes and uh, uh, I would say daring operations carried out by the Polisario inside Morocco-controlled Western Sahara. Ricardo Fabiani is the project director for North Africa for the International Crisis Group. He's been reporting on the conflict in Western Sahara for quite a number of years now. He joins us today. We are seeing... Once again, the use of drones in uh, uh, in a conflict in this region after what we saw uh, uh, earlier in Libya, and uh, there is also a, a, I would say a significant lack of clarity and transparency. And this is not surprising, of course, in the use of drones uh, and the, you know whether effectively drones were used in uh, uh, in the attack that was carried out by Morocco. Uh, only a few days ago against one of the highest profile uh, military leaders uh, of the Polisario. So we think, I would say overall, we can uh, reasonably assume that a drone was involved in that operation, uh, that uh, that drone, people say, was probably of Israeli uh, production, uh, it's, again, unclear whether it was an American drone because we still don't know whether American drones have been delivered uh, to Morocco or not. So Morocco, I would say, overall keeps a very sort of uh, uh, opaque stance uh, on the issue of drones, the utilization of drones, of course, and the employment and the use of drones in this specific matter against uh, the Polisario. Officially, Rabat claims that drones are only used for surveillance purposes. But if it were confirmed that a drone was used in the assassination of this uh, uh, Polisario leader, uh, that, I would say, would change quite a lot. Uh, and it would also, I would say, put a lot of pressure on Morocco because the other question inevitably would be where American drones involved in this and were these American drones meant to be used against the Polisario? It's reasonable to assume 
that uh, Washington would not sanction uh, uh, this kind of use uh, for their drones. So I would say this is a, a key issue, a key point at this stage in the conflict because it could increase international pressure, diplomatic pressure on Morocco. And if we could highlight Morocco as, uh, as uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, actor that is ready to use this kind of weapons. Uh, and obviously that the big question would be who supplied this, we this weapon, these drones to, to Morocco. But it would also, you know, the use of a drone uh, against the Polisario would also highlight another important fact, which is the, I would say, significant and growing technological gap between the two sides. If drones are used, they are more and more taking, playing a significant role in this, in the fighting, it becomes even harder to imagine that the Polisario could successfully carry out more attacks inside Morocco-controlled Western Sahara and therefore could inflict significant damages and increase military pressure uh, on Rabat. For many years now, this conflict has effectively been a proxy war between Morocco and Algeria. But do these tensions extend to Algeria and Morocco themselves, or is the fighting limited to Western Sahara? What are the relations like between Algiers and Rabat? The, I, I would say there is, there hasn't been so far any, uh, first of all, any direct confrontation or any direct clashes between Moroccan and Algerian forces uh, along the border. There hasn't been really any involvement by the Algerian uh, armed forces in this conflict. And the Algerian stance overall remains one of uh, diplomatic and political support for the, the Polisario and its cause. Uh, but also uh, there is a lot of, I would say, hesitation and caution uh, in Algiers regarding the possibility of providing more military support uh, to the Polisario. And obviously, Algeria is very much aware of the international contexts and the limits of what it can do and what kind of reaction it would trigger inevitably if it were to decide to transfer more weapons to the Polisario or even to uh, support the Polisario uh, more directly, uh, let's say. So I think there are some clear limits to what Algeria is allowed in a certain sense uh, to do in this conflict. Now, having said that, there are a few things that are taking place on the Algerian side of this conflict, one of which was the appointment uh, of a, a military uh, intelligence officer who is very well known to be uh, close to the Polisario, who was recently appointed a very high-profile position within the military hierarchy in Algeria, and who is, you know, this kind of appointment is sort of suspected to be a move that could, in theory, uh, increase the, uh, you know, first of all, improve the relationship between the Algerians and the Polisario, but also increase the involvement of Algeria. Uh, in this conflict. One of the major developments in this theater is the US recognition of the Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara by Trump in the last days of his presidency after Morocco had recognized Israel. So why would the US officially recognize this position? What do they hope to gain? And why would Morocco recognize Israel? What would they hope to gain from that? That was obviously the most significant political diplomatic development of the past six months. Um, and it was, it can only be described as an exchange, as some sort of swap, almost, uh, or barter between the two sides. Um, the Americans obtained 
the recognition of or some sort of normalization, partial normalization of diplomatic ties between Morocco and Israel and Morocco obtained, on the other hand, the recognition of its sovereignty over Western Sahara. Now, from the American uh, perspective, it's quite clear what they had to gain here, particularly uh, from uh, the perspective of the, of the Trump administration. Uh, obviously, the, this kind of exchange was uh, not without its controversies in Morocco, particularly, obviously, the most problematic uh, point was the recognition and the normalization of ties with Israel. Now, it's important to highlight that Morocco and Israel already had some degree of, uh, of diplomatic ties back in the 90s, when uh, at the time of the Oslo peace process, Morocco decided to open a liaison office in Israel and allowed Israel to open a liaison office in Rabat. This office was closed in 2000 at the time of the Second Intifada, and relations were never resumed after that. So there was a precedent for this kind of diplomatic relations. And that's an important, I would say, point to start from. Obviously, there is a large section of the Moroccan population that is not happy with the normalization or this partial normalization of ties uh, with Israel. So Morocco has basically reopened its liaison office and Israel has done the same thing in Morocco. So there is no plan at the, time, at the moment to uh, open an embassy or fully normalize relations between the two countries. But inevitably, this is controversial. This is a country, Morocco, where there is a strong uh, left-wing and Islamist, uh, uh, I would say, mobilization in favor of the Palestinian cause. And it's also a country uh, uh, where the king himself sits on a committee that is supposed to protect the interests of, uh, uh, let's say, Arab and Muslim Jerusalem uh, in Israel. So taking this step, was not without uh, its controversies. There were a few protests that took place in Morocco after the announcement. However, the Moroccan system has managed to contain, even through repression, uh, uh, these, uh, these protests and has managed to, I would say, weather the storm pretty effectively. In return for this, obviously, they got the, the recognition by the, Amer by the US of its sovereignty, of Moroccan sovereignty of its Western Sahara. And this is a major victory, a major diplomatic achievement for Morocco, because over the previous months, we saw a series of African and Arab governments recognizing Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara by opening consulates in Dakhla or Layou, the two main cities uh, of Western Sahara. The fact that it's the US now officially recognizing this sovereignty changes everything. Obviously, not just because the US is the most important political uh, actor, let's say, in the world and in the region, but also because the US has played traditionally a significant, I would say, a major role, the most important role in the Western Sahara conflict, both diplomatically and uh, at the UN Security Council. Uh, this is also obviously for the US a major departure from its previous positions and in general from its from its stance of uh, at least ostensible support for uh, uh, international law and uh, UN Security Council resolutions. This recognition goes against all of this because it recognizes 
Moroccan sovereignty over a territory where the UN has previously openly stated that uh, it considers it an occupation and it believes that the self the right to self-determination uh, of the uh, local population, the Sahrawis, has not been exercised uh, until now. So why now? Why would Donald Trump choose that moment to recognize Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara? And will Biden uphold this decision, do you think? I think he, I think there was a convergence between the two uh, large trends. One, the fact that the Trump administration was trying to carry favor ahead of the elections in particular, with the uh, pro-Israel lobby uh, domestically, and obviously the Abraham Accords, the strategy, I'd say, around the Abraham Accords was a key tenet of, of this. And Morocco was seen as one of the low-hanging fruits that this administration could uh, could pick in relation to uh, the issue of normal, or normalizing ties with Israel. And in this case, they found a very sort of transactional approach to the idea of normalizing ties. So I would say the two sides, Morocco and the US, had a very similar understanding of how to deal with this. Uh, they both saw this very much in terms of a business. You know, I give you this and you will give me that. Now, the other main trend is also the fact that there was, uh, first of all, that there was a, a major political vacuum. At the, UN, at the United Nations level. The last uh, personal envoy of the UN Secretary General to Western Sahara, former President, German President Urs Köhler, resigned in May 2019 and was never replaced, mostly because of the stringent conditions imposed by both sides, by both the Morocco and the Polisario, on the choice of the next personal envoy. And it was mostly Morocco that imposed some very specific preconditions to the appointment of a new personal envoy. That created, I would say, a vacuum. It created a political and diplomatic vacuum that Morocco was able to exploit. And as I've already mentioned, uh, it's around that time, before, right before, but also most importantly after, that a long list of African countries and Arab countries were convinced by Morocco uh, to open a diplomatic representation inside Morocco-controlled Western Sahara in an implicit and sometimes explicit recognition of its sovereignty over Western Sahara. So there was already, I would say, a trend in place on the ground created by this political di diplomatic vacuum that was you know, a consequence of the lack of a personal envoy, but also obviously a consequence of the fact that for uh, almost 30 years, there was almost no progress on this file uh, at the UN uh, and obviously diplomatically uh, towards some sort of permanent solution. So the convergence between the Trump administration's interests uh, uh, on Israel for and, uh, uh, the vacuum created by this situation, I would say, produced uh, this uh, extraordinary, really, uh, exchange uh, between recognition of uh, uh, of uh, Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara and, and partial normalization of ties between Morocco and Israel. The French have troops and are very involved in some of their old colonial areas in this region, like Mali, Guinea, and Côte d'Ivoire. Do you think the French will get involved in the conflict of Western Sahara or just leave it alone? So I would say that the, Euro the Europeans are heavily 
involved in this conflict. And obviously, when I say the Europeans, I mainly mean France. Uh, Spain plays obviously a role in this conflict, but it's, I would say, arguably its impact is uh, less important, less significant than than Paris. Um, now, France has is heavily involved. I, I'm saying that is heavily involved in this conflict through its uh, political, diplomatic, and to an extent even military support for Morocco. And this has been a very clear fact for uh, uh, over 40 years. Um, France is afraid of the uh, potential destabilization of Morocco, Morocco being a key ally for its uh, uh, strategy in North Africa and in West Africa, and a key partner, I would say, uh, also economically, so not just politically. Um, and the reading in Paris uh, has always been, still is, that the uh, future and the outcome of the dispute over Western Sahara could have significant repercussions on the stability of the monarchy. Because obviously, it's through the Green March and through the significant investment made in Western Sahara, it's the Moroccan monarchy that has really tied its fate and its, uh, its, its uh, political survival to uh, the ability of uh, maintaining control over Western Sahara. It's a key source of legitimacy for the Moroccan king. So France sees all of this through this prism, through this lens. They believe that Western Sahara uh, uh, is a potential source of instability in the region, mostly because challenging Moroccan claims would inevitably destabilize Morocco. And Paris is ready to uh, really do whatever it takes to support Morocco in this respect, not necessarily out of conviction, but also out of fear that the Moroccans could complain, and could retaliate against Paris uh, uh, on this specific file. And obviously, we all know that the Moroccans are particularly sensitive when it comes to Western Sahara. So the, I would say, you know, to sum it up, the, the French position is one of almost complete support for, uh, uh, for Morocco. On the other hand, they are obviously mindful as well of the Algerian position on this, and they don't want to uh, anger or antagonize the Algerians on this specific file. That's why we haven't seen a French recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. They know that this would be too much. It would mean going too far uh, uh, from the Algerian perspective. So here, France is basically effectively balancing its two main interests in the region supporting Morocco because Morocco is uh, the closest ally uh, in the area, but also uh, protecting its interests and its relationship uh, with Algeria. Spain, in all of this, is effectively a minor player because it tends to follow uh, the French position on this, and they are mostly worried about, again, the destabilization of Morocco and the potential impact on migration flows uh, from the region um, to Spain. But obviously, when we compare Paris, uh, Paris and Madrid, we're talking about two countries with very different international influence and, and uh, political and military weight, uh, again, both in the world and in the region. So what really matters when it comes to the European position is really the French, the French stance on this. A country who seems like a major player in this conflict, but we haven't talked about a lot so far, is Mauritania. With the Madrid Accords, Mauritania was eligible to administer up to a third of Western Sahara. 
What are their claims on Western Sahara and what is their position on this conflict these days? I think the Mauritanians have learned uh, a big lesson in the 70s and uh, when they tried to get involved, to get involved in, this, uh, in this territory by occupying one-third of Western Sahara and then uh, effectively uh, going through uh, what can be only be described as a, as a military defeat at the hands of the Polisario Front. So Mauritania really knows very well what it means to get involved directly in Western Sahara. And also, I would say, is very well aware that its resources cannot be compared to uh, the Moroccan. Uh, the resources, and most importantly, the willingness to really invest political and economic capital in maintaining some sort of control over this territory or getting involved in, in this dispute. So Mauritania, I would say, can only be seen as uh, an observer to this conflict, an actor that has obviously an interest in the stability uh, of Western Sahara. And traditionally, uh, Mauritania is quite close and sympathetic to the Polisario uh, uh, perspective. Obviously, I would say for a variety of reasons, going from suspicion vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Moroccan nationalism, that from the Mauritanian perspective is obviously a potential threat, to obviously an interest in seeing some sort of permanent uh, settlement uh, of this dispute. Now, I would say that what has changed over the past few years, uh, and obviously this, this is yet another fact on the ground, imposed by Morocco in Western Sahara that has really tipped the balance uh, in its own favor, uh, is the building of the Gergerat Road, uh, of this uh, artery that connects Morocco uh, to Mauritania through uh, Western Sahara. This is a road that uh, has become increasingly important from an economic perspective because it connects Morocco to West African markets, and obviously, the first West African market that uh, it connects is Mauritania. And over time, the uh, ties, the economic relations between Morocco and Mauritania have only grown, I would say, closer. And uh, Mauritania has become more and more dependent to an extent on uh, imports from Morocco through this, uh, through this uh, uh, piece of infrastructure. So I would say that this has sort of pushed a little bit and shifted a little bit the Mauritanian position over time. So from, uh, I would say, quite open support and sympathy uh, for the Polisario uh, perspective on this conflict, Mauritania has gradually shifted to a more neutral stance where it sees its interests tied to uh, the protection and security of this road built by the Moroccans across Western Sahara, a road that is hotly, I would say, severely contested by uh, the Polisario Front. Do you think we'll see this conflict stay localised between the local actors, or do you think other countries are going to get involved, whether that be Turkey, Russia, the United States, or more Europeans? The key question here is, what would happen if uh, the conflict remains in the current state of, let's say, low-intensity conflict without any significant international uh, intervention or mediation, what would happen in the long term when the Sahrawi refugee population, particularly young Sahrawis, realize that there is no military solution to this conflict, they cannot achieve anything 
by military means, but there is also no diplomatic solution either because there is no real involvement, no real investment by the international community in the in a permanent uh, uh, and, and fair solution uh, to this conflict. Are the young Sahrawis, in particular in the refugee camps, going to turn elsewhere for support or out of desperation or out of a change of tactics vis-a-vis -vis Morocco? That's where I think the biggest risk lies. The possibility that what is right now a self-contained uh, conflict will relatively uh, limited, uh, if non-existent almost, repercussions in terms of regional stability, then could turn at some point in the future into a broader conflict with significant repercussions for the stability of the Sahel region. What if the Sahrawi population uh, establishes links with militias or armed, armed groups that are currently present uh, in the Sahel region? You know, it's obviously a, a major uh, assumption, but many people that uh, these refugee camps are uh, effectively comparable to an island in a in a, in the de in the Saharan desert which is which would be obviously a sea that isolates the Sahrawi population refugee population from the rest of the region but i think that's a little bit of a oversimplification there are links there are ties of all sorts between this refugee population the local algerian population and the rest of the region. So these networks could be activated at some point if uh, there is growing desperation or growing disillusionment uh, with the status quo. And that's where I think we would then, we could then risk seeing things that we haven't seen so far in terms of uh, security repercussions and the involvement and participation of other armed groups or other states uh, even in this conflict. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The people of Western Sahara want their freedom. They want the promised vote, a vote on their future. But their freedom would lose Morocco a lot of control on a road, a road between the lucrative Moroccan ports and the resource-rich countries like Guinea, Senegal, and Sierra Leone. A lot of these Western African nations would stand to make a lot of money if Morocco can keep control of the road. As we know with roads and trade routes, where there are trade routes, there are major market players looking to get their way. So let's talk about some of these major players, and how countries like Turkey, China and the US 
are all trying to put their finger on the scale to get their desired outcome. And to talk about that, we turn to our third guest. Part three, overlooked. Africa as a continent is more and more promising from a commercial perspective. You know, as, as you go into the, into the future of the next 10, 15, 30 years, because of demographic reasons, because of all kinds of reasons, um, Africa is no longer optional. It's vital, especially when you have a merchant, you know, commerce-oriented um, philosophy like, like Morocco has. Uh, in that sense, you cannot tolerate the idea of being separated in, in, in the perception of the Moroccans from, from sub-Saharan Africa. For you, it's like part of your territory, it's yours, and, uh, and you have been struggling for you know, multiple decades to get it, and you will get it. And once you have it, of course, it will make a lot of sense from, from all kinds of points of view, including uh, geopolitical and, and commercial. Jalil Hatchery is a senior fellow at Global Initiative and a research fellow at Noria Research. Jalil is an expert on North African security and politics, and this is his third appearance on the red line. We're very pleased to have him back joining us today. You know, in, in general, Spain is, is not big enough to be able to remain involved uh, so far away. Uh, the, this, the, the, the Spanish empire is a thing of the past. And uh, in terms of GDP, in terms of the culture, in terms of the ambitions, and also in terms of, of the... Um, balance of power vis-a-vis the United States, vis-a-vis the Gulf states, vis-a-vis a much bigger European nation like like France, uh, Spain feels that it's automatically associated with with a particular past that it's no longer interested in, and uh, and it feels and I think it's the main reason here is it just feels too small. Uh, so so why bother? So it's almost like the outcome is almost predetermined and it's just a matter of going through a certain amount of, of hassle to get there anyway. So why not just be passive and let it happen? Because obviously there are much bigger boys, if you will, uh, involved in this, uh, in this file, especially uh, I'm, I'm alluding particularly to the last few months of the Trump administration. Uh, being able to appreciate the opportunity that that one term, you know, maybe there was going to be a second term, but at least the first term, the one that actually began in January 2017, was perceived by a lot of players as a, as a window of opportunity to just get things done when it comes to accelerating a lot of the unresolved conflicts. And, um, you know, Turkey saw it when it comes to what turned out to be the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Uh, in the last several months of the Trump administration. And, uh, and the UAE also um, really appreciated what it meant in terms of being able to, to initiate the blockade against Qatar. That blockade was supposed to be an invasion. You know, that, that, that project was actually discussed and stopped by the Americans uh, in 2017. And it also meant the, the war on Tripoli when it comes to Libya. And... Um, and Morocco, you know, saw that kind of leadership, understood the potential of the Trump administration, and uh, and worked on it, 
And in the final months, they did something which is exactly what I was trying to describe, an acceleration of a frozen conflict. You know, why, why bother for another 10 years? Why don't we just get done within a couple of months? One of the major players when it comes to North African security is obviously France, who are currently running peacekeeping missions all over North Africa, in places like Mali, Chad, Niger, and Guinea. Do you think the French presence will extend to also operating in Western Sahara, with the situation on the ground at the moment intensifying? in an attempt to prevent this spiraling out of control? Uh, it's very amb- ambivalent uh, because France is deeply involved from a diplomatic perspective. Um, you know, it's almost an inherent part of, uh, of the French doctrine as, as it has been over the last 45 years or so. Um, so this notion that France is on the side of Morocco, that it's opening a consulate in Dakhla, uh, right away, uh, regardless of what it means when it comes to the relationship that France is supposed to kind of repair with Algeria. So right now we're in the middle of a of a diplomatic incident between between Algiers and Paris. From the Algerian perspective, the the reason is clear: is this consulate that that actually means recognition of the Moroccan character of Western Sahara. So it's a very hurtful, very delicate, very sensitive um, topic from an Algerian perspective. And, um, and, and when it comes to the French way of looking at it, they, you have this pretense that they don't see the connection. You know, well, what's wrong with that? You know, like, why, why are you creating an incident with, with Paris? We didn't do anything. I mean, the rest is completely unrelated. It's not unrelated. Um, so this is the diplomatic aggressiveness uh, of France, and it's clearly on one side only, with with no real genuine attempt to kind of you know massage the situation and try to to slow things down and, and be reasonable and and find a, a middle ground. Do you think either side may look to other players for support in this conflict, whether it be in the region or in the peripheries of it? Uh, knee-jerk reaction is to think about, you know, like uh, a close-by European power like France. But this is not the geopolitical order that is that exists now in, in, in a region like the Middle East and North Africa. You have all kinds of weird dynamics, like uh, I spoke about the UAE, and, and the UAE could help, you know, even militarily, because it, it likes playing with, like, uh, gray zone uh modes of action, you know, like paying some people, you know, sending some maybe potentially Sudanese mercenaries, you know, all these things could happen, you know, conceivably over the next several months. But you also have like the enemy of the UAE that is also on the side of Morocco, Turkey. Turkey is happy to, if it's asked by Morocco, and I'm sure Morocco asked, I mean, uh, it's, it's also something that is in the cards, um, Turkey is very happy to, would be very happy to sell uh, its uh, very um, effic- uh, effective drones, combat drones to, to Morocco. So, we, you know, from a Western perspective, we're not used to these kind of horizontal, you know, regional to regional kind of partnerships, especially when you see two enemies like the UAE and Turkey both rushing to be on the side of, of Morocco, even if uh, the conflict continues to deteriorate from a military perspective, and in which case Morocco would need to receive some help. 
Um, and of course, if, if Biden decides to, the Biden administration decides to slow things down in a very genuine manner, which I doubt, then things will will cool off. But what what happens when when you let it is typically these uh, you know crisscross uh, kind of dynamics within the region, which I think we should keep an eye on. With all of these bigger partners jumping on the side of Morocco, whether they be in Europe or the Gulf. Algeria is really risking political isolation by digging in so deeply on the side of the Polisario front. What could Algeria possibly hope to gain the long term from this conflict? Well, it's a legacy. Um, and it's a legacy that flows from a very real politique kind of uh, rationale. Always remember that, you know, Algeria was not supposed to be that big. Going into the Avian Accords of the 5th of July, 1962, until the very last minute, France hoped to be able to somehow scoop up uh, the Sahara. And uh, because of all kinds of reasons that I don't want to detail here, um, one of them being being American pressure, um, Algeria turned out to be this huge giant geographically speaking and and so that that explains uh why you have the the imbalance right away in the mid 70s but when 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 spain leaves um so what i'm saying is that when you sit in algiers you're used to the official or at least what used to be the official size of morocco and you're very happy to kind of use your like Realpolitik 101 kind of calculus to uh, contain Morocco, which is much closer to the colonial powers, if you will. You know, I'm, I'm voluntarily using this kind of language, and I'm, I don't mean it literally. But, but the idea is to kind of contain Morocco and avoid the situation where Morocco ends up being much larger. And in that case, you know, if you look at uh, the economy, the economy of Morocco, I mean, it has its own weaknesses, but it's more diversified and, and more agile than whatever the Alger- Algerians have built in terms of their, their own economy. They don't have much else uh, other than uh, extraction of hydrocarbons, and that will run out you know, within the next 20 years. Um, so the, the demographics uh, are roughly the same. You know, of course, Algeria is slightly bigger. The uh, arsenal is roughly the same, uh, except that Algeria has been receiving its weapon, buying its weapons from Russia, whereas Morocco always invested in this idea of buying the equipment from uh, from the U.S. for political reasons, political reasons, and it has been paying off. Then you could imagine how things would evolve if if the uh, annexation of, of uh, Western Sahara um, happens sooner rather than later. It, uh, it will tend to choke Algeria, and you don't need to be paranoid. This is just basic realism. Um, and uh, so when you look at it from that angle, then, of course, you're, if, if, if you sit in Algiers, you're, you're, your inclination is to try to slow this th- this thing down and you and you will want to sabotage 
whatever Morocco is working on because you don't tolerate the outcome. And the outcome that Algeria fears today is exactly the outcome that it feared uh, 45 years ago. So Algeria is getting their weapons from Russia, but who is supplying the Polisario front? Who is passing on the guns to those guys? No, it's, it's I mean, most of it is, is Algeria. There are all kinds of accusations, but no evidence, you know, like uh, sometimes you hear weird theories about some uh, Iranian presence in the area when you listen to Morocco, but Morocco, has not been able to produce any kind of evidence uh, to that effect. Uh, then, then the other thing that could happen also is that as the situation becomes more desperate, knowing what is happening in the Sahel, which is a disaster, really, and what happens also in other parts of Africa in terms of you know, non-state actors getting stronger and stronger, uh, using violence as their primary political tool, and, and, you, and you accept uh, an evolution that kind of puts the, um, the Polisario supporters in a, in a desperate situation, then you could imagine um, weird associations. But those haven't happened yet. I mean, there's no, again, there's no proof that it, they have happened. It's just something that could potentially happen if uh, the acceleration that I have been talking about over the last several minutes, actually does take place. It's really a matter of uh, the direction has been roughly the same for the last several decades, but but being more brutal uh, and going faster will uh, is bound to create uh, some unpleasant side effects, uh, more probably than if you if you try to be reasonable about it. Most conflicts like this, we tend to see influence from some of the great powers like Washington, Moscow, and Beijing on the ground. But there's surprisingly little from these players in this one. Why has Western Sahara been, for the most part, kind of overlooked by most of the great powers? Well, I don't know that Russia is going to overlook it. I think the jury is still out on that one. Russia likes to pick the side of the underdog in in, in in a lot of those remote theaters. I'm not talking about a case like Syria. Syria is really part of what the Russians call uh, the near abroad. It's really a vital strategic interest in many regards from from Moscow's uh, perspective. But if you start going farther than that, uh, Russia likes uh, going the other way compared to what the United States wants or what the Western European want uh, simply because trouble is is uh, a way of of weakening all those westerners and uh, and creating opportunities in a, in, a, in a continent that really matters to uh, that that really matters for for Russia so um, I you know China is a different story China is uh, is much more indifferent uh, in general it uh, it lost a lot of let me give you an example, the Libya example. It lost a tremendous amount of money in 2011. It lost uh, something like $25 billion of, of outstanding contracts. And, uh, and China didn't translate that into any kind of anger, any kind of rush, any kind of desire to get involved. It just waited it out. And now it's coming back slowly into Libya. 
after 10 years of conflict. So this notion that uh, China is always jumping at every opportunity because it's somehow in, in a hurry is absolutely false. Um, and, and, and in that regard, usually China is coordinating with Russia when it comes to the Middle East and North Africa. If Morocco is in such a dominant position with lots of backing from allies, why stop the conflict where they are? Why stop with a 90-10 split in Western Sahara? What stopped Morocco simply pushing the Polisario front out into Algeria and having 100% domination of Western Sahara? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to I'd like to answer in two parts. First of all, it's Morocco is flirting dangerously with that kind of temptation. And as you said correctly, it's not fully doing it. It's not actually doing it. Uh, why not? Well, why did the Americans lose in Afghanistan? Why did they lose in Vietnam? Why did the Russian or the Soviets, I should say, lose in Afghanistan? It's because when you're confronted with a nationalistic insurgency or, or insurrection or any kind of nationalistic guerrilla war, then your beautiful conventional military uh, becomes almost useless. Uh, that's a constant throughout the last uh, 150 years since the birth of, of nationalism. So that's, that's the answer. It's a very dangerous thing to play with. The idea of the Accords was to prepare the Western Saharan people for a referendum, to either join Morocco or become a new republic, the Arab Sawari Democratic Republic. Do you think that referendum will ever actually take place? And what do you think the likely outcome would be if they did run that referendum? I mean, I don't think they would vote for for incorporation in in, uh, in Morocco. I mean, I, I you know, obviously the referendum is is something that is not going to happen, um, and I shouldn't be speculating. But I don't think the uh, the public sentiment is uh, is a trivial thing either way. Um, so again, it's, it's uh, you're, you're playing with this idea of, of actually negating or contradicting. A, uh, a very, a, you know, very earnest sense of uh, of nationalism, and uh, even if the percentage is not huge, you cannot just, you know, uh, crush it because uh, of some percentage or some statistic, or because you think you have the uh, armed forces to do it. It's it has never worked in history, and this is not an exception. Is there a risk of this spiraling out of control in countries like Turkey or Russia getting involved on one side or the other and this becoming a proxy war like we see in Libya at the moment? Not at the same speed as Libya. Uh, I think for Turkey, it's just a commercial opportunity to sell some drones if it can, which I, which I think it can. Uh, then it will sell those drones and those drones will be used eventually, you know, within a year or two. Um uh, I, I think we'll, I, you know, I think the, the word to spill down or spill out is a little bit too, uh, too, too strong. I, I suspect just like uh, decay, decay and uh, towards more violence for sure. But I don't think it's a uh, Libya type situation simply because the location is not as attractive. The uh, symbolism and the ideological stakes are almost non-existent as opposed to Libya, which means a lot within the Arab world. You know, the politics of Tripoli 
is something that everybody is worried about in the region. I mean, of course, Europeans don't understand that, but but from an Arab perspective and, an, and a Sunni perspective, when you include Turkey, it matters a lot. All these dimensions are missing. Uh, so it's more about uh, unnecessary, dangerous, but slow decay towards uh, towards more violence and uh, and more dangerous games. During the research for this piece, a friend of mine from Tunisia described Western Sahara to me as a minefield on top of quicksand. You have to keep moving to avoid drowning, but moving can also trigger a much larger problem. There is no easy solution here, and I feel like I say that all the time, but on the principle, the Sawari people should be given the right to determine their own fate, much like almost every other African nation got to do in their past. But we know that Morocco is unlikely to ever let that happen. Morocco has a vision to secure a roadway from the practically European port of Tangiers to the resource-rich countries in the heart of West Africa, to build up and connect the Mediterranean to the Gulf of Guinea. This would be beneficial for a number of African stakeholders, but requires the road to be guaranteed secure or international investors may not be willing to support the project. And the only way to secure it is to stop the civil war. The Moroccans have also dumped tons of national blood and treasure into this conflict. To retreat now, even after a referendum, would largely shake the internal domestic politics inside Morocco, a country that is not exactly the height of stability to begin with. And if the king does fall and a power vacuum ensues, nobody is sure how dramatic the fallout will be. Will Morocco become another chaotic North African state? Will it become a floodgate for refugees into Southern Europe, much like we saw when Libya began to collapse? Either way, I don't think Paris, Washington, or Rabat is willing to roll the dice on that one. Supporting Morocco, though, is not only turning a blind eye to a police state inside Western Sahara, or the fatal crushing of the Sahrawi protests, but it also poses a deep question for the international community. Can borders be changed by aggression? Since World War II, we have, for the most part, avoided changing borders by means of war, taking away the incentive for many countries to try and launch military attacks against their neighbours. When Russia did it in Crimea, they suffered heavy sanctions. When Iraq did it in Kuwait, they were fought back by the international coalition. If Morocco manages to get what they want through international aggression, What's to stop countries like Serbia, Brazil, India, or Bosnia thinking about shifting their unsatisfactory borders by force? So what does the international community do? Stay out of it and let it fester even longer, hoping one of the sides doesn't get desperate enough to turn to international bad actors for support, which wouldn't be hard with Mali so close by? Or do they try and rip the band-aid off and accept the situation as it currently stands on the ground, and hand Morocco the keys to Western Sahara, knowing that the rules of the road have now been changed and Sawari blood is on their hands. Is it worth a West African highway? Is it worth Moroccan support for the war on terror? Is it worth making sure a strong rabat can keep a lid on the refugee situation on Europe's doorstep? That is the question we have to ask, and much like all those maps we talked about at the start, it's an issue we have little concrete data for. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I always love talking about these countries that don't really get a lot of attention from the international press. And I think there's very little countries that get less attention than Western Sahara. If you want to find out more about the show, vote in polls, get maps, or be invited to our GeoGuessr game nights or our live Redline Geopolitics pub quizzes, the best way to keep up to date is to follow us on social media, to which you can find the show online on Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, Twitter, Discord, and Swell on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or you can follow me personally on the handle at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show would not be possible without the amazing support of our Patreons, who donate a few dollars a month to help keep this show running, as there is a surprising amount of costs associated with running a show like this. Our Patreons are some of the best people I've ever met, and I love catching up with them for not only one-on-one Zoom chats, live Q&As, private research and question answering, transcripts and game nights, but I also just like to get to know you guys. If you love geopolitics and you want to be a part of a fantastic community of great people sharing amazing intel from all around the world, we would be incredibly appreciative to have your support. And you can find us on Patreon or you can go to our website and click the support the show button. I want to say thanks to all of our guests this week for coming on the program. Stephen Zunos wrote an absolutely amazing book on the subject, and it's incredibly rare to find anyone who comes even close to his amazing knowledge on the topic. We are thrilled to have him on the program this week, and if you want to check him out, you can find him and his great work on the Twitter handle at SZunez. Ricardo Fabiani has been someone I've been following for quite a while now, as he is consistently putting out fantastic insights into this region of the world. Not only does he understand the macro, but he also understands the individual personalities and micro-movements driving the politics of the region. So I highly recommend you follow his work, and you can find him on the Twitter handle at Rick Fabiani. Jalel has come back for his third appearance on the show, and I was so pleased to have him back on the program. Jalel is not an incredibly bright mind, but he is also an amazingly lovely person to work with, both on and off air. There is no one I trust more with North African news than my friend Jalel, and if you want to check him out, you can find him on the handle jmjalel underscore h. As always, here are our three recommended books on this subject for you to take your deep dive into Western Sahara even further. The first is Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution by Stephen Zunez, which is a complete guide to this topic and made up a good chunk of the research for this piece. The second is Endgame in the Western Sahara by Toby Shelley for a historical look at the conflict. And the third is Government and Politics in the Middle East and North Africa by Sean Yom for a wider regional look at what's going on. This show would in no way be possible without my amazing team, Mark Spencer does the extra voiceover work for these episodes, and even during his move across continents, he was able to find time to record and produce these chapter titles for us. Mark is one of the hardest working people in the business, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him on the team. And if you want to check out all of the great work Mark is doing, you can find him on the Twitter handle at Climactic Show. Owen Swift's role on the show cannot be understated. He is absolutely crucial to all the success we are currently having. Owen works hard in the background helping us write, produce, and research many of these topics, as well as build up our website. Owen, as always, is amazing to work with on this one, and I look forward to him being part of the show over a very long time. But if you want to meet Owen for yourself, you can find him on Twitter on the handle at Owen A. Swift. Joe Hawthorne does great work here at the show, cleaning the audio and preparing it for our transcripts. He's also a big name in the US East Coast podcasting scene in his own right. Joe has been a crucial part of the team for over a year now, 
and the show only sounds as crisp as it is because of his help. So if you want to get Joe to help your podcast or even just chat with Joe about audio questions, you can find him on the Twitter handle at JoeHawthorne77. Marissa Rafter has been working to turn these episodes into short videos, and so far they have all been fantastic. Taking complex 90-minute topics and condensing them down to easy-to-understand animations in about five minutes. Marissa has worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, and we are so proud to have her as part of the team. The last thanks goes out to you for listening to the program. This week has been a tough week for me, but seeing so many of your emails and support and questions to the show really cheered me up. It really means so much to me to see so many of you reach out, email me, offer to chat with me, and I've enjoyed meeting everyone I possibly can. There has been so much love in my inbox this week, and I really am appreciative of everyone who got in contact. So thank you for all of the love and support you guys have poured out to me over the last two weeks. It's rare to find a community of people who are almost as big as geopolitical nerds as I am, and I honestly love the people I've met so far. The show will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.